Acts chapter 9 this morning. There's this weird thing that happens when you're a pastor and you get to teach on these cool holidays and you get through this and then you realize like, hey, sometimes I see the same people, you know, on these different holidays and I don't want to say exactly the same thing I said last time, right? So just in case, and maybe I haven't seen you in a year, I thought we'd do something different. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 9. We just read about the resurrection and, and not only does Jesus raise from the dead, but as Jana just read to us, here's what happens. People encounter the living Jesus, right? Now, again, people that knew Jesus and saw Jesus die, saw him hung on a cross, saw him laid in a grave, like the women that were caring for his body after he had died, I want you to consider the impact when they see him alive. This is life-changing. This isn't, oh, I haven't seen you since last Easter. This is, you were dead, now you're alive. And you're here, and you're talking to me. And if you've never met the living Jesus, if maybe your only encounters have been kind of the traditional, historic, or cultural Jesus, the, the Jesus of history, or the cultural Jesus, the Jesus that gets talked about a lot in American culture, but you've never met the living Jesus, there's a distinction. There's a difference. So I want to give you a main idea today. We'll put this on the screen. The living Jesus, many versions of Jesus exist in both tradition and culture, which are different than the living Savior of Scripture. When you meet the living Jesus, everything changes. When you meet the living Jesus, everything changes. If you're John and you saw him buried, if you're Mary and you saw him buried and you see him alive again, that changes things. This is new. This has never happened before, never happened since. When we talk about the resurrected Jesus, we often have this tendency to think about something that happened 2,000 years ago, and then it gets vague on what happened after that, but we're not thinking about today. When we think of the living Jesus, the living Jesus alive today. And that is different. That's a game changer for all of us. So Acts chapter 9 is an encounter a man has with Jesus. Uh, honestly, I, I was thinking about what to do, and, and we just got to, I got to do a shorter version of this at Valley Christian some month or two ago. And I thought, this is, this is the right thing for today. And so Acts 9 is going to introduce us to a man named Saul. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, if you're unfamiliar with who Saul is, Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the Apostle. I hate to spoil the ending for you, but <laughs> he becomes the most pronounced first century church leader other than Jesus. He writes a good portion of the New Testament, and he has this radical conversion that we get to hear about today. So Acts chapter 9 there's Bibles in front of you if you need a Bible. In fact, if you use one of those Bibles on page 917, I'll give you the, the easy way to get there. Verse 1, but Paul, but excuse me, see, I'm going to do that all day long. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if, any found, if he found any belonging to the way, meaning Christianity, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul of Tarsus, here's who this man is. There's a modern-day connection. And if you're old enough to have been through 9-11, right, if you remember how we felt about Osama bin Laden in that moment, right, 
where he's the man who, he was the architect of the attacks on the Twin Towers and the Pentagon. And there was this, there is actually somebody who's against us. Not like another nation that we might talk about today that competes with us or may not want us to do the best, maybe they want to do better. But this is someone who would give his life to coming and attacking us. And so in Osama bin Laden, we, we felt this, an enemy, an enemy courageous enough to fight, not just dislike, but to fight. See, Saul of Tarsus was a religious zealot. He was passionate about his Jewish faith. And he believed that God was having him persecute Christianity as a way of honoring, glorifying, worshiping God. And so again, like Osama bin Laden thought this was glorifying to Allah to, to persecute Christians and attack the U.S., that's who Saul of Tarsus was. He felt like he was glorifying God by persecuting Christians. He's already overseeing the execution of a young Christian named Timothy. And then he goes away, and he reemerges here. And this time, he has paperwork allowing him to go into cities and arrest men and women who profess a faith in Jesus. And so I think I said all this. I'm going to put this on the screen anyhow. Saul of Tarsus. Saul's a religious zealot who believes that God has called him to persecute Christianity. Modern-day equivalent, obviously, Osama bin Laden. And so if you're old enough to remember the feelings after 9-11 and just realizing a real enemy, a fearful enemy at times, that was first century Saul. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. So I want you to get this, I just want you to imagine in between cities, often like we experience if you drive from here to Vegas or from here to Phoenix or whatever, you go through this kind of this space that's undeveloped. And as he would go from city to city on these roads, he would go in this in-between space. And so he leaves this city, he's headed into Damascus, and he's out kind of in this open space. It's midday, the sun's out, and suddenly something brighter than, something greater than the sun shines on Saul as he's traveling in between cities. Verse 4. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So he's on the road to Damascus. Something brighter than the sunlight of the day shines through, drops him to the ground. And as he falls to the ground, he hears an audible voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now in this moment, he has no idea who is talking to him. But note the response. Lord, who are you? Like, you're now in charge, and I don't even know who you are. Something is different. And then these words will forever change Saul's life. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. So I want you to just think about this for a minute. I want you to think about what changes for Saul in this moment. So Saul, prior to this, is a religious, zealous Jew. He believes that Jesus is a false prophet or a false teacher or someone who has misled Judaism, who has proclaimed to be God, who has set himself up as the very promise of God, promised for thousands of years throughout the Old Testament, that he is that, that he is not just God, but he's also human, that he came in, he lived, and he died. And the rumor is that Jesus rose from the dead. But you think that is all false, 
and that that is all misleading and that that is all bad for Judaism and does not glorify God. And so you, in your passion and zealousness, are going to go and eliminate this teaching. We're going to tell people Jesus is fake. And as Saul goes between cities, Jesus speaks to him, blinds him, drops him to his knees. Lord, who are you? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So I want you to imagine what changes for Saul right now. Like Saul's job that he trained for, that he feels like God has called him to, as a Pharisee, as a religious leader, all out the window. His mission, his purpose to kind of eliminate Christianity from Judaism, this false teaching, is now true. His job, now gone. His belief about Jesus as bad, now Jesus is God. And Jesus is alive. Everything about Saul in this moment is now upside down. Everything he believed, everything he clung to, everything he was passionate about is now up for grabs. He has more questions than answers. And the only answers he has are something about Jesus is true. Everything is now in question for Saul. So Jesus continues, verse 6. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. I love that there's witnesses to this. People with him hear this, but they have no idea what's going on. And Jesus is speaking to Saul. And Saul gets up from this exchange blinded, and his probably blindness is the least of his issues. Everything in his life is now changed. And Jesus tells him, so go into the city, and someone there will tell you what you are to do. So the, the gospel in this moment for Saul is becoming clearer. See, the gospel for you means super simple, that, that God created you, loves you, designed you, made you. Loves you, made you to be a worshiper of his, meaning that your life is to bring glory to God. That you are created to bring God glory. Now, sin enters into human history, and all of us participate. But really, sin is very simple. It's when we stop glorifying God, and we begin to glorify ourselves. However that plays out in all of our lives, and in big ways and small ways... It's when we're not glorifying God, when we're not putting God first, oftentimes when we're putting ourselves first. So sin comes in, and like infidelity to a relationship, severs the relationship, strains the relationship, breaks up us and God. And God could leave us to our choices, but God in his love and grace and mercy says, no, you can not work your way back, but I will come to you. And so God becomes human. So Jesus, the Son of God, becomes flesh. And he enters into our story, in our body, in our life. And he lives a sinless life. And then he goes to the cross, the very thing we talked about on Good Friday, and he gives his life to cover the sin and the separation and the gap between God and humanity. To cover between a holy God and a sinful and wayward humanity. Jesus becomes the bridge the mediator, the redemption. And then Jesus, as he dies, he covers our sin, but Jesus can't just stay dead. Otherwise, we're just forgiven versions of our broken, sinful selves. So Jesus resurrects from the grave, bringing new life to you and to me. 
That in baptism, like we're going to see today, baptisms celebrate that. When we see someone go under the water, we talk about dying to the flesh, dying to the old way of life. When we come up out of the water, we talk about a rising in Christ. That baptism is a visual, as well as a means of grace, something that strengthens and pours out the Spirit on the person. But that gospel in this, in this moment reminds us that Jesus must be alive for this. That without a resurrected Jesus, we're kind of wasting our time. And so I'll put it like this. We'll put this on the screen. A gospel pro proclaims a living Jesus. If Jesus lived and then died on a cross but isn't alive today, the gospel is false. Hear me when I say, if he's not alive today, the gospel is false. And a living Jesus is required for the gospel. There's no life in Jesus if he is still dead. So don't believe me. Let's hear it from the very man himself, Saul, who becomes Paul the apostle. Here is 1 Corinthians. Next slide, please. There we go. Saul of Tarsus, so Paul writes this. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. If Jesus is not alive today, we should have slept in. <laughs> I could have finished that first USFL game or whatever that was from last night. But if Jesus is alive, game changer, right? If someone lives and dies and then lives again forever, then I want to know more. Okay, so you actually have the key to life. Okay. So Paul encounters this. Paul encounters the living Jesus and everything is changed. His old faith, wrong. Or at minimum, incomplete. His purpose, his job, his thinking he was glorifying God by persecuting Christianity, out. Everything for Saul of Tarsus now is like a blank sheet of paper. And there's one thing on this, and it's Jesus. And he doesn't know how to fill in the rest. Are we that transformed by a living Jesus? I said something to this effect a couple weeks ago. If, if, if your life hasn't been entirely changed by Jesus, then I want to know if you've truly met Jesus. Because Jesus changes everything. If he lived and died and rose again, everything changes. Verse 8. It says, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. He's been blinded by this. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. You know, at this moment, food and drink are just not important. Everything, everything Saul has ever believed is missing. Everything Saul was passionate about, his entire education, his job, his life, his purpose, it's all wiped away right now. He's not worried about what we're having for lunch. He's not worried about his sight necessarily. I'm sure that's an impact, don't get me wrong. But he is now wondering how the very false teacher he thought he could eradicate from the world just spoke to him from heaven. So my story, I, I don't have a, no audible voice, no shiny lights, but I spent the first half of my life wasting my life. Started early with drugs, and, and with drugs as a kid came a lot of trouble, a lot of crime. I got kicked out of my house early. 
That led to more crime, which led to gangs, which led to jails, which led to prisons. That's the shortest version of that story I can give you. But here to tell you this, my life was going the other direction. That I had wasted all that time, that I had gone in the wrong direction, away from God. And so I just want to ask you, so it, is, it, is it any different, me or, or Saul? I'll put it to you this way, and we'll put this on the screen. Does it really matter if your life is quote-unquote good or bad? If you are completely off track, does it matter how you're going the wrong way? Does it matter if you're pursuing a great education and, and trying to fund college with sports and, and have a good family, but you're entirely missing Jesus? Does it really matter? I mean, maybe you have less of a negative impact on the community than I did. Good for you. But if you're really going the wrong way, does it matter why? And I don't want what I did for any of you. My prayer and our prayers at church for all of you as kids is you'll never know the dumb things we did, right? Never, especially the things I did, right? But if you're going the wrong way, you're going the wrong way. It doesn't matter what you're pursuing. Paul was going the wrong way. Thought he was glorifying God, but he was entirely wrong. I was entirely wrong. I just knew I wasn't glorifying God. Might be the only difference. But if you're going the wrong way, you're going the wrong way. If you're wasting your life, you're wasting your life. If you're missing the living Jesus, you're still missing the living Jesus. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord sent you on a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. So we always hear Acts 9 as this story about Jesus speaking to Saul. But actually, Jesus speaks to two people in this story. Jesus also speaks to Ananias. Ananias is praying, Jesus speaks to Ananias, and it is noteworthy, but Ananias' whole life doesn't change. It's already changed. See, Ananias isn't going the wrong direction. Ananias is actually praying. He's in that moment praying. He's already a follower of Jesus, and actually, we don't even hear about... Ananias isn't even weirded out that Jesus just talked to him. Right? I would be like, whoa, that was audible. Never had that. But it seems like Ananias has this kind of relationship. He's been a man of prayer. And in this moment, life's kind of normal. It's probably cool. It's probably amazing, probably great that Jesus is speaking to him. But his life just didn't get upended. He's just in a continuing prayer. And the Lord said to him, verse 11, rise and go to a street called Straight and go to the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. Both are praying. Saul is very different. Ananias. Jesus speaks to Ananias. But listen to this. And he's seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his, seat, his sight. Excuse me. So Jesus speaks to Ananias also. But Ananias is going the right direction already. And so it's one of those moments where he's in prayer, and then Jesus calls him to something. Now, Jesus calls Ananias to something hard. We'll get, that in a, we'll get to that in a minute. But he asks Ananias to go do something for him. So here's who Ananias is. We don't know how he came to faith. We don't know if, if he got blinded on some other street. We don't think so. We might know that, right? But we don't know. We don't know how he came to faith. But he's a follower of Jesus. He's in prayer. He's doing what he should be doing. He's doing what we should be doing. And Jesus speaks to him. But Jesus hey, says this can... I need you to go do something for me. 
I need you to go to this other guy whose life is now upside down and blind, and he knows you're going to come and talk to him. So Ananias has a calling on his life too, but it's in line with what Ananias is already doing. It's just the next step, right? Might be out in the ordinary. Maybe Jesus has never spoke to him before. Maybe Jesus speaks to him all the time. We don't know. Maybe he came from very far outside the faith. Maybe not. We don't know. What we know is Ananias is already living inside a faith where the living Jesus is his focus. Because as he prays to him, Jesus speaks to him and calls him to do something. Verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard about from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from chief priests to bind who, all who call on your name. So Saul has a reputation. Again, I want you to go back, again, if you're old enough, and this totally makes sense, Osama bin Laden, that name carried an emotion with it. When you heard the name, you had a feeling about it. When Ananias hears the name Saul of Tarsus, he has a history there. I've heard what he's done all over Jerusalem to the church in Jerusalem. And I hear he's coming here to do the same things. It's that moment like, really? Really? Like, really? I have to pray? Like, I have to go see him? Like, I hear you. But him? I remember right after 9-11, uh, we were at a large church in Orange County. We had these gatherings in these bunch of rooms of prayer, and I remember we just kind of go around praying, and there's a young girl in middle school, I'll never forget her prayer, as we're all praying for the people in New York, and the people in D.C., and the other plane that crashed, we're just kind of going, we're processing through all of this, was, this is probably a night or two after, probably Wednesday, Thursday that week, as it goes around, this young girl, from, she's a middle school girl, great girl, she's all grown up now, but she prayed for the terrorists, and I remember the conflict in my heart. Like, do I really want to pray that some of Bin Laden will turn around? Or do I just, like, want to call one of those Old Testament prophets, smite him, oh, holy Lord, you know, one of those kind of things, right? Like, kill them all, Jesus, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. I remember the conflict, right? I'm human, flawed. I want it, you know, I admit. I wonder where Ananias is in his heart right now. Like, mm, do we really want him to turn around, or can we just leave him blind? Because that would be good, right? He doesn't argue. But hey, I've heard about this guy. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, the calling of Ananias is to get outside of his comfort zone, to go speak to somebody who's not, let's just say, not easy to love, right? He's been a persecutor of Christianity. He hasn't personally affected Ananias in any way we know, but let's just admit, that's not who Ananias wanted to see that day. But then there's the calling of Saul. Listen, you're going to go tell him that I'm calling him. He is going to take my name to all kinds of people, and he will eventually suffer and die for his faith. Compare those callings there, right? So again, my conversion didn't have lights or audible voices. In fact, it was a simple prayer in a cell. That asked Jesus, hey, I am so broken, and my life is such a mess. And I said these words, if you will fix me, I will never leave you. I didn't know what that meant. 
By the way, I was headed back to prison to do a whole other prison term, so I had no inclination of what that would look like. If you had told me that we would be standing here today, I'd laugh. I'd probably still be laughing, right? But the living Jesus met me there. Like Jesus changed, changed everything. It was slow. I wasn't blinded. There was no audible voice. I was healed of a drug addiction. That was amazing. But this slow, ongoing life of change began. And Jesus met me in that moment and, and, and hasn't stopped meeting me in that. And I got lots of room to grow. But the living Jesus made an impact. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you. I love what he leads off with. You know the guy that blinded you, that's who sent me. As long as we have this relationship clear, right? That guy, I'm here for him. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Hey, Jesus has sent me to tell you about him because he left you off with blind and a lot of questions. And so he sent me here to fill in the pieces. And so I'm here. It says, and immediately, verse 18, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And he rose and he was baptized. The first thing Saul does is he gets up and as a first step of obedience, he is baptized. That first message proclaimed by the church in Jerusalem is Peter after he's filled by the Holy Spirit, goes out and he preaches this gospel. It's in Acts 2. And they ask him, well, what do we do? Like, okay, so we hear you. We entirely miss Jesus. We got it wrong. How do we fix it? What do we do? He says, brother, what do we do? What must we do to be saved? And here's Peter's answer in Acts 2. He says, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and all who are far off everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. He said, listen, get up, repent, be baptized. Identify yourself with Christ, and, and he will forgive your sins, and he will fill you with his spirit. And this promise is for you, and this promise is for everybody. This promise is for all the nations. It's for you, it's for the next generation, for the generation after that. But that's your next step. We need to see that today. Before young people say, hey, listen, I want to be identified with Jesus. I want to take that step of faith. I want to be obedient to Jesus. I want that empowering of the Holy Spirit to lead me in my life, empower me to live for Jesus. That's what Paul does. That's what Saul, excuse me, who becomes Paul. Let's read it again, verse 18. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. What's next? And taking food. Like he didn't even eat first. He hasn't eaten in days. The living Jesus changes everything. Jesus spoke to him. He's like, I'll eat when I'm done. I got to be obedient first because I never want to have that happen again. I never want to be that so far off track. So he's baptized and then he eats. He was strengthened. Verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying he is the son of God. Saul's a different guy now. Some disciples there, meaning Christians, they started filling in the pieces 
They started telling her, hey, you believe this about Jesus. Let me tell you the truth. Let me tell you what he said. Let me tell you what he did. Let me tell you how he died. Let me tell you how he rose from the grave. We saw him after he died and alive again. We watched him as he ascended back to heaven in front of us, alive. Saul kind of getting some of this inside of him to kind of know where he's headed. He begins to go out and tell of his conversion and proclaim Jesus to be the very son of God. Everything is different. So we'll put this on the screen. Saul is completely transformed. Saul isn't just a cleaned up version of his former self. He is entirely transformed by Jesus. He has left his old life behind and he begins to tell others about Jesus. Nothing about the Saul who was on the road to Damascus remains. His faith has changed. His God has changed. His purpose in life has changed. What he is passionate about is changed. And he is now living for the resurrected, ascended, living God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Like the disciples who already followed him, who see him alive at the tomb, begin to go and tell that message. Some believe them, some don't. Jesus appears to more and more. And then he commissions them, listen, when my spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses, you'll tell others. Saul is persecuting this. And Jesus meets him on that road, changes him forever. Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul, the apostle. He goes on to plant churches all throughout the rest of this book called Acts. The final chapters of this book tell of his arrest and his journey from where he was arrested all the way back into Rome as he gets to proclaim the gospel, the living Jesus, he gets to tell to kings and governors of multiple nations and countries. Eventually landing in Rome where he remains on house arrest until he's executed for his faith. All the while writing these letters to the churches, telling people of the living Jesus. He will go on three more times in just the next 20 chapters to tell his story over and over and over again. He will tell it to common people in a church in Ephesus. He will go on to tell it to a governor and a king. He will tell it in front of royalty and, and, and important crowds, and he will tell it to common people. Everything has changed. Has everything changed with you? See, Jesus speaks to two people here, not just Saul. He speaks to Saul and changes everything, but he speaks to Ananias, who's had everything changed, who has been that, who is that life of a believer, of a follower. And there are, there are two stories in that. There are those who are walking with Jesus, who have a relationship with the living Jesus, and there are those who are impacted by the living Jesus. Regardless of where you sit today, the living Jesus changes everything. Saul is completely transformed. I stand before you today completely different, entirely changed, and not of my own doing. So I'll say what I said in the beginning. 
If your life hasn't been entirely transformed by the living Jesus, I would ask, have you ever met him? What we hope for is that our young people will grow up and they will never have a day outside of that. That they will know the change of Jesus from the time they are young all the way up. But they will know that he is alive and they will know that he is king and they will know that he is God and their lives will be singularly focused around Jesus. For the rest of us, it's about wrapping our heads around that and following and worshiping the living Jesus. And so is that you today? If you're our guest today, if you have just joined us today, is that you? And if that's not you, I would love to talk to you after service. Our elders will be around. You'll see them helping me with baptisms. Ask us. Talk to us. Let us tell you more about the living Jesus who changes everything. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. Nothing we did was of any value, of any change. It's what you have done that changes everything. Like you appeared to Saul, with a voice and a light and a change. Or like you spoke to Ananias clear, in prayer, quietly. Would you speak to us however you would do, however you would speak? May it be to call us closer. May it be to call us to turn around. May it be to call us from pursuing the things in this world that just don't matter, that will all fade away when we fade away. Would you help us to be singularly focused on you? Help us to put everything else in our lives secondary to you. Help us to learn how to live for you, Jesus, because you are alive and you transform everything. And so it's in your name we pray. Amen.